Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. It's already Monday, and it already feels like we are, what, about a week into the, the news cycle. The big debate is tomorrow night. I was just reading an alert from Politico about the crucial stakes, and of course, I'm a little contrarian about that. I'm not sure how crucial it is, given how stable the polls are, but but we'll, but we'll see. And then, of course, just as you were settling in on your Sunday night, we got this massive bombshell from the New York Times. And in fact, I was I was actually going to work out on my stationary bike, and I opened up my my laptop. I usually read stuff when when I'm when I'm doing that. And there was the New York Times and this big story: presidents, taxes, char, you know, chart chronic losses. And I'm thinking, is that an old story? I mean, because when I have heard about this, and then realized probably about 15 seconds earlier, they had dropped this mammoth story. And to say that it's mammoth is putting it mildly. The president uh, paying $750 in taxes uh, in 2016-2017 uh, and then zero in 10 of the previous 15 years. And and I, I think that, you know, obviously there's going to be a certain amount of too, too cool for school reaction that, well, this won't make any difference. This won't move the needle. I mean, really, if if you're still supporting Trump after you found out that he paid a six figure payoff to a porn star that he had sex with, you know, a little thing like avoiding hundreds of millions of dollars in taxes and being hundreds of millions of dollars in debt isn't going to make a difference. But but I, I, I do think that this is one of those moments to step back and just what did we actually learn here? What 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 picture was painted by all of this? And also just in raw political terms. Yeah, this may not uh, cause any of Trump's base to peel off, but it's certainly not going to make it easier for him to make up the ground that he needs to make up when you're seven to 10 points behind 36 days out from the election. You want things that are working in your favor, and this doesn't. So we have a lot to chew over this morning. We have a Supreme Court nomination. We have uh, more stories about what's going on with the balloting and the absentee balloting. Uh, we have the debate tomorrow night. Uh, so uh, we reached out to somebody who can handle absolutely every one of these issues. Kim Whaley, a uh, contributor to the, uh, the Bulwark, law professor, constitutional expert, former U.S. attorney, and expert on election law, Kim. Happy Monday morning. Good morning, Charlie. So I dated myself this morning. You, you knew that that I, I do this occasionally by making the reference to Leona Helmsley. I don't know that anybody remembers Leona Helmsley. I mean, I'm sorry, below a certain age. Leona, she used to be big. I mean, she was one of the most famous villains in America back in the 80s. Yeah. Do you remember her at all? I, I do. I do. I mean, I was in high school, but yeah, um, I do remember the name. Yeah. yeah. I remember the the headlines and the and the tabloids and all of that. Sure. She was, I mean, just a horrible person just in general. I mean, she was known as the queen of mean because she treated people so badly. And, and then, but the famous quote was the, we don't pay taxes, only the little people pay taxes. Eventually, she's sentenced to four years in prison for tax evasion. But but that really did. And Forbes said that, you know, at the height of her fame, she was as big as Donald Trump or Kim Kardashian. And and that line about little people not paying tax was kind of in the 1980s was the American version of let them eat cake. Sure. And I, and I really was thinking about that, what we learned about Donald Trump last night. So where, where do we start? What what was what was your big takeaway from from the story? Well, as someone who focuses not just on elections, but also, you know, the law and the Constitution, it kind of makes sense why he's 
running around saying, listen, I'm going to stay in office come January 20th, no matter what, right? That threat that he wasn't going to cede power because he's facing a potential onslaught of not only criminal liability at the federal level, the OLC memo protecting him from prosecutions for potentially tax fraud, um, that that's not going to protect him anymore as of January 20th. In addition, um, we're we're going to see, according to the New York Times, he will see potentially upwards of three hundred million dollars in personally guaranteed loans that are going to become due in the next few years. I think uh, those lenders are going to have an easier time coming after a private Donald Trump than a president Donald Trump. And then we also saw eighty-seven million dollars in potentially false. Um, you know, rebates that he's he could be uh, wrestling with the IRS. So this it painted a picture of a man who um, is on the precipice of personal chaos and just devastation from a financial standpoint, <laughs> from a legal standpoint. And what's holding him between what's holding him back is the presidency. It's just unbelievable. You know, the, the headline in the Drudge Report and for people who wonder what's the significance of the Drudge Report, that used to be the essentially the the assignment editor for for all conservative media. The headline is fake billionaire. And I guess the question is, are you really a billionaire if you have a net worth you know, of minus hundreds of millions of dollars? I don't know. So I, there's a couple of interesting phenomenon here, uh, and a couple of people have noticed this, noted this on 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 Twitter, which is the the fact that he paid seven hundred and fifty dollars for two years in a row is sort of oddly specific, but it's oddly relatable. There, there's you know there's there's this weird alchemy in politics where sometimes if if a number's too big, people's eyes glaze over. But um, when when it's when you know it's it's small like seven hundred fifty dollars, people can go. Well, I paid more than that for blank, so it, it is weirdly relatable. In weird, in, in some ways, it's actually it, it, it's it's more relatable than just zero. Do you follow what I'm saying here? That it's right. uh, because you can go, okay, seven hundred fifty dollars. You know, when I was working a minimum wage job, you know, back in you know this year, this is this, that's a that's a smaller number than Abraham Lincoln paid in. <laughs> Right. I mean, and we have so many people that are struggling right now because of a coronavirus pandemic that he knew about and lied to the world around. Um, so $750 is a lot of money for certain people. But also when they look at what they paid um, yeah. with, with you know, jobs as teachers or firefighters or, you know, store clerks, uh, that that is going to be a four or a five figure number that they paid in taxes um, with this alleged billionaire basically, you know, flouting the tax laws and evading it. Uh, that I think that's that's problematic because it looks super unfair. And I agree, it's kind of a number people can digest. But it also kind of blows up his his image as this, you know, yes. fabulous, wealthy. Right. I and mean, this is what wrote him into office in 2016. So he kind of looks like a loser or, you know, a failure. And I just wonder if that's going to make people not so want to be on his team with such such kind of like vigor that we're yeah seeing. no I I can see that no see I think that's the great takeaway from all of this I think this is even more important than the fact that he didn't pay any taxes because I think we kind of knew that he didn't pay any taxes and that was kind of baked in here but but you know I, I think it's the failure and kind of the the overall fraud that, that he was a a fraud so I mean we're going to hear from Trump world that well he didn't pay taxes because he was so smart and so successful no he avoided the taxes because he lost so much money and as you point out Kim his businesses are on, on the brink I mean I love this quote from the New York Times ultimately Mr Trump has been more successful playing a business mogul than being one in real life 
So what these documents do is they basically show that that everything about Donald Trump has been a front. It's been fake. He's just not that successful. He's not a good businessman. He's pissed away the millions of dollars that he got from his father and that he he basically has been running this this shell game. So I, I don't know. Um, whether that makes a difference. But there were there were a lot of voters back in 2016 that voted for him because they actually kind of were taken by this uh, successful businessman vibe, this aura of success and in uh, incompetence. Um, so not so much. Well, yeah. And it's hard for him to walk away from his own statements given to the IRS. He can't run around and say, these are lies. These are made up. These are fake news. I mean, if that's the case, if that's his position, then he should just release the accurate tax returns, and he can't. But I, I do think it goes back to this notion, listen, people have to pay their own bills to go home to kind of pull out your checkbook and, and see what's in there and say, listen, the president is spending millions of dollars of taxpayer money that he hasn't contributed to. And it really does not only look like a fraud, but a cheat, that he's that he's a cheater. And I, I don't know. I think people will kind of sort of mentally do the gymnastics to tolerate. But I also wondered, you know, his big donors, because um, he's not paying the kind of taxes that people in his tax bracket have been paying either, right? That's something like 24% of people in the super high income. Of course, he got $3 trillion in tax cuts for them. But he's not paying his share in that tax bracket as well. So I think it leaves everyone feeling a little duped, um, you know, suckered to use his word. And that's not somebody you really want to follow, but we'll just have to well, see. Uh, they're, they're, I think they're probably going to be stick with him. But I, I also think, I mean, there are so many different angles on this, in, including the the way in which, you know, his 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 lack of liquidity, shall we say, the hollowness, the the hollowness of, of, of his businesses that explains why he's been so you know, explain some of these conflicts of interest. I mean, you want to talk about the emoluments issue, you know, rising back to the top of the agenda here. Uh, There's a reason why he feels the need to pump so much uh, government uh, grifter cash into his own businesses because he really needs that to keep him afloat. I also think there's some dazzling details here, and there may not be the biggest things, but the the way he's written off the business expenses, you know, the lavish things, you know, uh, you know, the, the $70,000 to style his hair during the apprentice. Right. The, right. And also o- paying his daughter for consulting fees when she was already an employee of the Trump organization. I mean, uh, this is, this is not complicated, uh, in terms of, you know, this, this doesn't look shady. This doesn't look right. It looks, it looks shady. And the other big issue of course is, you know, he did pay taxes to other countries, it looks like, like India. Oh, um, and then, you know, what people need to understand is, that, you know, if, if a regular federal employee goes to work in the White House, they have to go through a serious, long-standing background check. I mean, I've gone through these. They, they talk to all of your neighbors. They, they dig pretty deep to make sure there's really nothing that you could be conflicted over. Um, so this is just what we know that he actually disclosed. The question is, you know, who has it over him, right? Who does he owe uh, that um, that he's worried about that has an influence over his ability um, to make yeah. decisions on behalf of the American people. He doesn't go through a background check. That's the national security question. Well, and, that, and that's true. I mean, massive debt is often a red flag on national security, right? Because of exactly for the reasons you said. And of course, there's the twist here about uh, Donald Trump being the populist. You know, the guy who was looking out for the little guy. And we have a piece by Tim Miller in the Bulwark today about really what a scam that that was. Um, uh, that that 
essentially he's allowing himself to be subsidized by that little guy in so many, so many different ways. And look, I'm not arguing this is necessarily going to make a difference, but I was struck this morning um, looking at social media. The number of of people who did find the numbers relatable, uh, the the folks who are doing the, you know, I paid more in taxes as a summer lifeguard in high school than Donald Trump, or I live on Social Security, and last year I paid more income taxes than Donald Trump. Uh, I guess that makes me a sucker and a loser, or I paid more taxes than Trump when I was a junior in high school working part-time in Taco Bell in 1993. And, you know, that, that is the that is kind of the vibe and, and what sort of does kind of connect the dots here that Donald Trump clearly thinks that smart people let other people pay the taxes, you know, let little people pay the taxes, that suckers and losers are the ones who paid, I don't know, a fund our military, who fund uh, police, fire, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I, it's, it is, it is a remarkable sport. By the way, speaking of Ivanka Trump, <laughs> I, 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 I'm, I'm, as you, as you can hear here, there are a few stories that just make you go, no, that can't be real. And this was one of those stories where I thought that this can't be real, but apparently it is. So Rick Gates has a new book coming out uh-huh. in which he talks about how Donald Trump very seriously considered putting Ivanka Trump on the ticket in 2016 as his vice presidential running mate. And they, apparently they actually did like polling or focus groups on it or something. I didn't, I, I hadn't heard that, but I mean, this is just, you know, I, I want to, I, I mean, not to shift back a little bit, but I do think it relates to this fact that the notion that you just don't pay taxes, I mean, this is just, or putting your daughter on the ticket. I mean, this is, these are just such blatant um, defiling of our norms and how we function as a country of laws. And I know we hear this all the time. Um, but most of us pay our taxes not because we're worried about the IRS coming after us, but because it's just what we do. We stop at stop signs. We we follow laws in this country. It's not that way in other parts of the world. And so complete destruction of our social and legal fabric that way. I, I think people don't understand what the implications of former years of this man and, and of course, the nepotism, the, the severe nepotism. And one last point is there's nothing on the tax returns, according to the New York Times, about Russia. Yeah. Um, so I would want to know, okay, what was not reported on the tax returns? I mean, this is that thread that keeps giving, I think, if, if investigators could actually look at it. Well, and but there's a little bit in there about the Miss Universe contest and how much money he made. So just one one last point here, because if if you track this stuff, and this this requires people to go in, into the interactive New York Times, which is just, it's really quite remarkable. And as I said to you before, Kim, I, I think we are living in sort of a golden age of amazing investigative reporting. I may, may you know, may not be read by the people who need to read it, um, but this is incredible stuff. One of the things that becomes pretty obvious is that the guy was was really in deep trouble uh, before he was bailed out by the television show The Apprentice. Um, When somebody writes the overall history of this, the role that NBC and Jeff Zucker played in resurrecting Donald Trump has got to be a major factor because he was he was clearly hemorrhaging cash. He made some money um, off The Apprentice. But when that ran out, he's looking around for a new gig. And the suggestion, and it's in the story rather explicitly, that this sort of gives some credence to the speculation, the kind of wild speculation, that one of the reasons he ran for president back in 2015 was to sort of juice up the brand again. Yeah. That, that, that was, was, oh, that, you're kidding me. <laughs> that jumped out at me as well, because we sort of hear these stories that he didn't really want to be president. Nobody thought he could really be president. 
Um, and he blew through all that money that he made on The Apprentice uh, wildly, you know, put it into golf courses that, that that have just hemorrhaged money since then. And so, yeah, it's really interesting that he really one day he woke up and this is why he didn't have a transition team. This is why he didn't have a cabinet. This is why he hadn't thought about anything, <laughs> yeah, right. because he really thought this was just a frolic and a detour to get to get some more cash in his bank account. Um, and here we are four years later in a pandemic and 200,000 dead people and just crisis after crisis after crisis. I mean, this is a part, Charlie, I don't understand. Don't people just want to stop the, just stop the tsunami of chaos coming from this man? I mean, don't we just want to exhale and be normal again? I, I don't understand that. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm down with that. So I was watching, um, something I haven't really done that much so far this year, uh, because you know, the NFL is actually still playing. And, uh, but I was actually watching a non-Packer game, which is, uh, Seems unusual for me these days. But anyway, I, I, there were a number of political ads. There was a Biden ad. I think it was a Biden campaign ad that began with almost those words that, you know, let's put the last four years behind us and make that pivot to to something that looked like actually doing stuff. And I, and I actually thought it was uh, it, it, it hit it hit the right note. But yet that's the thing that you're putting your finger on, whether there's a cumulative weight of all of this stuff, that no one story is enough to do it, but the cumulative weight of just pure exhaustion. Can we just make it stop? Right. And, and, and you know, we're, we're talking on Monday, 36 days, and all the polls show substantial leads for Joe Biden. And we keep asking what would have to happen for Trump to turn this around. Now, there's a couple of things. That could happen. I mean, you know, something awful could happen at the debate. I'm increasingly worried about what's going on with the uh, absentee ballots, the mail-in ballots, and 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 whether and whether or not you know that alone could be enough to flip the election in in some of the key states. We have the Supreme Court nomination coming up, which I don't think is going to change the dynamics of 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 all of this. So let, let let's just talk about this because you've written the book on elections. And I have to admit that every once in a while, I'll look at these polls and I'll say, "Okay, you know, they look pretty stable. They're, they are sending a very consistent message that that number one, that that the Trump is losing nationally. Of course, the popular vote doesn't count, but uh, Biden is winning in some of the key states. There was a, a poll yesterday showing him up bigly in Wisconsin and Michigan. He he wins there. It's hard to imagine him getting to two seventy. You're seeing uh, states like Georgia." being competitive, Texas being competitive, uh, which means that Donald Trump is on defense in states that he's won in the past that should not be in play at all. But I am worried about the chaos uh, with the voting. And of course, we've had all the nightmare scenarios and the president clearly challenging the legitimacy. So let me ask you this. What are you most worried about at this point in, in, ter in terms of the election machinery itself? Well, oh gosh, there's so many things, frankly. Yeah. Um, but you know, I, I read recently that Mark Zuckerberg is giving money to, to these, to uh, Facebook's giving money to election officials so they can buy PPE equipment. I mean, states we talk, people, the Republicans talk about tax or uh, uh, voter fraud, but it's not voter fraud; it's error because they don't have money, they don't yeah. have what they need to actually run the elections. But the bigger issue, frankly, this is what's going to happen, Charlie. Um, November 3rd is going to roll around. And then on the 4th, he, Trump is going to declare victory and claim that all of the mail-in ballots that are being counted after Election Day are fraudulent or some some version of that. And under state law, some of them cannot be counted until the last ballot um, is actually cast on Election Day because every state has its own, own law. So I think his his game is to create so much chaos and, and public 
sort of belief in this falsehood that will get around to December 14th, where the electors have to meet and they don't actually have a, 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 a count in certain states. Um, it's all tied up in litigation because we have this war chest. Republicans are challenging any access to the polls, increased access to the polls. And then it maybe gets into Congress in January. And that's where you just basically every state gets a delegate. And standing today, Trump wins if Congress Congress actually gets to do the vote rather than the people. In addition, we could see okay, now, now for, people, for people who have not been following the elections of like 1824 and things like that, it's not a vote of the House of Representatives. It's a vote of each congressional delegation. Right. So right. Each every, state one so, vote. So what what is what is how many states do the Republicans have versus the Democrats at this point? I, I think yeah. the last count was 26 to 24. So the Republicans <sighs> would win. I mean, and but, you know, what happens if uh, if some of those delegations shifted and what happens, you know, does Nancy Pelosi actually seat the the new the new um, candidates if it turns out that she believes that, you know, there are issues. I mean, she has that that power also under federal law Um, the states can decide as of December 8th that, listen, we're not going to get a popular vote count. So we're going to sit and just hand all our votes to one candidate or another. The states can decide to cast their electors in a way that's inconsistent with state law right now. So, for example, you could have a Republican legislature give it to Trump and a Democratic governor say, no, I'm going with the popular vote. Uh, There are just so many different scenarios. Okay, so this is this is this is the worst case scenario. Now, I had Josh Kroshauer from the National Journal on last week, and he said, listen, take it. Everybody should take a deep breath and, and, and not get sucked into what he called the panic porn. And like, for example, the Atlantic article. So this doesn't happen if people keep their heads or if Joe Biden wins decisively on Election Day. Right. I mean, if if, you know, if 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 on election night, you know, rolls around and and he's won, say, Florida, you know, I think it's pretty clear what's going to happen. Florida, Pennsylvania, Ohio. I mean, I, I, you know, I think we're done. Well, I mean, Florida is particularly because their votes are going to be counted right away. Right. I mean, that's that's the I I mentioned I mentioned Florida because we're likely to get the final results quickly on Election Day, unlike some of the states where there might be a substantial lag time. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, it has to be overwhelming landslide. I mean, people are saying this, but it's really true. Just if you kind of do all the analysis, um, how do you save democracy itself? Uh, It has to be a huge a huge win for Biden on the day. So it makes it harder for Trump to say he was cheated. And I actually yeah. think the tax story makes it harder for anybody to believe it when he comes out and says he was cheated when he's such a cheater. You know? Well, see, that's that's the thing, although that may be baked in. Now, of course, then we have the other variable um, on so many different levels, the the uh, U.S. Supreme Court. You, clearly, if you listen to uh, to a lot of the Republicans who are talking about um, you know why they need to, to push through the nomination of a- Amy Coney Barrett, there's a lot of issues involving health care, abortion, religion, all of these things. But if you listen very, very carefully, uh, one of the driving forces is it's all about the election, that we have to have, you know, her seated on the Supreme Court to decide the outcome of the presidential election. I mean, they're, they're, they're not even they're not even pretending in some ways. It wasn't then Lindsey Graham said that he would respect the the result of the court. He didn't say voters. He said the courts. Right. No, so. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's, you know, it's it's not going to be difficult. We've already seen five or six cases involving the election go to the Supreme Court. It's not going to be difficult for the court to reach for that issue. But I also think it's it's deeper than that in that, you know, if the Senate, some of the Senate seats change on November in November 3rd, then the lame duck time is not 
possible. It's not going to be available to a Republican Senate in the same way to push through a Supreme Court justice. And the implications of this woman, as, as qualified as she is on the court for the separation of church and state, for immigration, for LGBTQ rights. Um, I mean, there's so many issues, not just abortion, uh, in addition to the, the election that would solidify a minority rule or under the constitution on the court for, for generations that, that I think that is as much in play probably for Mitch McConnell as the election itself. So uh, maybe I'm naive, but, but I'm thinking about the Supreme court of the worst case scenarios for the integrity of the court, for the reputation of uh, legitimacy of, of the court, would be the the, the Rush nomination and conf- confirmation, and then having that court have to decide the outcome of the election. Um, I, I, is, there's part of me that thinks that that, jo- that John Roberts, Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and Barrett would be the, that in their minds that would be a worst case scenario that they would not want to be put in that position. Gosh, I don't know. I don't know Barrett. I do know Kavanaugh. I mean, he, you know, he does believe in the powers of each branch. I mean, he's he's not going to he's not going to want to see the court become sort of a kangaroo and that nobody pays attention to. Right. Right. Um, That being said, I have a piece actually coming out today in Politico that traces the law around elections and the law is super, super squishy. Essentially, uh, the justices can say, listen, this is a big burden on voting. This is not a big burden. And if it's they decide it's not a big burden, which was mostly the case, then they just basically defer to the states. It's, if there's so much discretion baked in and it's not anywhere in the Constitution, this is why when people talk about textualism and originalism, I, I have to roll my eyes because there's so much vagueness and made up tests and the voting rights test is super made up. Um, and so they, they could decide. I, I don't know, Charlie, they could just decide, listen, this is a legitimate exercise of the state's prerogative, whatever it is, whatever the challenge is, um, we can talk about, you know, um, you know, a- having a signature requirement or what- whatever the requirements are to make it harder for a vote to be yeah, counted. The um, naked ballot thing. Yeah, I mean, it just, it, 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 will, mm-hmm. it will come down to, I think you're right, they might want to decide, or they could just say, listen, this is a political question, I'm out, like they did with gerrymandering. And then, and then there isn't really an umpire, and and we'll just have to see how things unfold, just in politics. The what, what's interesting over the weekend was was watching the way that the two parties were lining up on this question of uh, Amy Coney Barrett, and clearly on on the right, virtually all of the commentary was they're going to attack her because she's Catholic. They're going to attack her. Look, this is anti-Catholic, which is an interesting position to take considering that Joe Biden himself is a Catholic, uh, Nancy Pelosi is a Catholic, but this is, this, this is the line from, you know, Hugh Hewitt on down, you know, that, that, that they're going to, you know, vilify her on the basis of religion. Uh, there's about a hundred times as many conservative sites saying that they're going to demonize her for a Catholic than actually anyone doing it. Because what I'm seeing um, among the Democrats is they want to make this all about Obamacare. They want to focus on this. They want to focus on voting rights or the, the, the election. So the right really is spoiling to make this a fight over, you know, the culture war. They want to make this a the, about the culture war. The Democrats want to make it about policy and and health care. Did you read it the same way? Yeah. I mean, that's why, you know, I thought that it was an unfortunate pick. I would have rather seen um, a, a more sort of moderate candidate for that very reason, because my my view was 
if, if they go for this, if they go for the red meat this way, it is about, it is about just, just driving up the culture wars. And that's really bad right now. We don't need that rather than a legitimate policy, a policy debate. And, and of course, you know, I mean, there are a lot of people in America and not all of them share the views of the six justices, um, that would dominate, you know, all walks of life for many, many, many years to come. And many of those were not put on on the bench by um, presidents that won the popular vote. So we're, we'd see a Supreme yeah. Court that's out of step with with America. Well, let's talk about that, because I, I saw a lot of speculation back and forth about, um, you know, whether or not um, a, a court with Justice Barrett on it would overturn Obamacare. There's the, the lawsuit that is pending in the court um, before the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. I don't think people really thought it was a serious possibility that the court would throw the entire thing out. I mean, John, we saw how far you know John Roberts was willing to go to contort himself to to, to save to save Obamacare. Um, but there I mean, obviously, the, the Democratic line is going to be you seat Amy Coney Barrett and Roe versus Wade is gone. But so is Obamacare. Would a court with her. Do you think they would overturn Obamacare? Well, I mean, she came out and criticized, uh, if I under, if I recall correctly, the Chief Justice Roberts' decision under the Constitution to save it um, uh, on a tax theory. So, so I, I, you know, I think it's entirely possible they don't take they don't take these cases if they're not willing to seriously look at them. So, and this is a week after the election we're talking about, yeah. and, and so this again is the culture wars. It's like okay, just blow everything up, and then I think it plays into Trump's hands because he's already stoked violence in the streets. And I know you don't, we don't want to get all drama about it, but we also have to face reality of what could happen. Uh, and there's just going to be a lot of people in tremendous not only pain but fear. Fear and fear just brings out really um, sort of you know visceral reactions to things, and and then anything goes. It's it's really really unfortunate. And I, I should say I do think Roe versus Wade is probably on the, with this particular court. They'll take the opportunity to reverse it. Um, but then you know what, Charlie? It goes back to the states because right. the states can legalize abortion. Then the question would be if that case came up right before a Justice Barrett, would she say? Listen, I'm going to respect the will of the states as a conservative and a feder- someone who believes in federalism, and allow that state to make it legal. I, you know, I don't know. Uh, that's my question. Yeah, um, I, I, I think, and I've described this before that the Roe Ro versus Wade w- was always the the car that Republicans wanted to chase, but they never wanted to catch because I mean, that 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 creates so many political problems uh, for 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 them. But uh, there's no question about it that I think there's 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 a choice here. So my, my, my position on on Amy Coney Barrett is and th- this is this is unpopular in some circles is that is that she should not be voted on before the election. I think there's a there's a solid majority of Americans that think the winner of the election should choose the next Supreme Court justice. If Donald Trump wins this election some way, um, I think she's you know, going to be confirmed by the lame duck session. I think she's you know, you may disagree with her philosophy. But by the normal standards of 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 the court picks, she's qualified oh, to be on, on the. No there's question. no there's no question about it no question. that she that she is qualified to be on this court. But it is interesting. I'm sure you've thought about this. I, you know, reading about Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and you correct me if I'm wrong on this. Didn't wasn't she confirmed with like 93 votes in the Senate? Yeah, I, I mean, I don't know the number, um, but it's something like that. Before right? Justice Gorsuch, I mean, people forget this. I know you know yeah. that. But before Justice Gorsuch, there was a filibuster for Supreme Court nominees, which required yeah. to get it required presidents to get buy-in from both sides of the aisle. 
Harry Reid, when he was Senate Majority Leader, he killed the filibuster for lower federal courts uh, just uh, judges because um, none of them were getting through. Um, they were all being filibustered. And then Mitch McConnell said, okay, what's good for lower fe- federal court judges and the Democrats is good for Supreme Court and the Republicans. So, so this is my problem with the situation, Charlie. It's that these justices are getting on the court with not a single Democratic or non-Republican voter buying in or having any say. I mean, this is a government by the people, but essentially half of the Senate, anyone with a D, is completely cut out, has no power in this process. And these people are there for life. The implications so, are huge. So this is it. This is really interesting to me because, as, as you point out, before Gorsuch, we, we would have bipartisan majorities in favor of, of the of the senators. I mean, in favor of the justices. It was necessary so, to get yeah, over the filibuster. So, yeah. So, but going back to the nineties, we thought the politics was rather intense and, and Ruth Bader Ginsburg was a very well-known progressive and got more than 90 votes for, for confirmation. So the entire political culture around the justice has shifted to the point where, you know, that even if I disagreed with you, remember, I'm, I'm old enough to remember when it was it was the norm was that we judged the justices not on their politics or their philosophy it was uh, whether they were qualified or not right so so that liberal senators would vote for conservative qualified justices liberal senators would vote for uh, conservative qualified justices now it's just raw partisanship but this also strikes me as a dramatic surrender of senatorial power and privilege because you had over the last week, it almost gets lost, the number of Republican senators that came forward and basically said, yes, I'm going to be a rubber stamp. Um, there's going to be no advice and consent, no advice here. I will vote for whoever the president sends down. So once again, we have members of the Senate standing up and volunteering to turn themselves into potted plants. I will do whatever you say. Again, institutionally, one would have expected that they would have continued a certain jealousy of their power and require the president to work with them and come up with somebody that, that they had they had looked at and vetted. And of course, they get to vote on it. But you're right. Now, the Senate has basically just become pure majoritarian. Right. And we saw this with no, you know, no witnesses in the actual trial. And then yeah. we saw this with acquitting him on obstruction of Congress, which was basically handing over any authority to enforce subpoenas against any president going into the future. Um, and it is the process. I mean, this was the issue I, I had with the Kavanaugh uh, hearings was that they're just, I mean, for lawyers, you want to just get the information out on the table. The American people deserve to do that. And there just isn't time. And so that was that was truncated. That was pushed through uh, without a thorough uh, you know, investigation, witnesses, et cetera. And here we're going to just see it so fast. And, and who loses? It's the American people who lose. And, and it's possible he could have put up someone who's not qualified. I should say that's a good thing. Um, but I just want to something that came actually was like this light bulb, Charlie, that went off for me as a constitutional scholar in the last 48 hours, which <laughs> I feel a little naive um, because, you know, I've been writing in, in this area about constitutional analysis for 15 years. And in in the academy, what we call you know law scholars, there is a real debate about textualism or originalism. And I frankly don't understand it because because, you know, and the argument is, well, it's just an obvious way to read language. And. And that's the way you should do it. And my answer was, wait a minute, you know, 1787, who was actually thinking there was only white males? I mean, it's really old language. It has a lot of ambiguity. I don't understand the argument. And I've sort of come to this conclusion that it was through Justice Scalia's imprinting textualism with conservatism 
um, that kind of gave an air of legitimacy to really, I think, which is a pretense that somehow there are judges that just know what it means. And they, they're the originalists and they're the conservatives, that there's this merging of theory with a, po a political point of view that has turned and regular people voting. We want originalists. We want originalists. When they, they don't even know what that means. No, they it don't. Really I mean, means nothing. It means nothing. Uh, See, I, I think that there, we're in the middle of a, of a different turn right now where I, I think more and more people, particularly on the right, are, because they, they're not, you know, the average base isn't going to be worried about textualism, but originalism, they may use the terms. They want results-oriented courts. There's, there's two different kinds of judges, and I, I've seen them. I've seen them up close. The ones who go through the process and rule what they believe the law is, no matter what the outcome might be, versus the ones who start with the outcome. And I think that right now, if you if you watch a lot of the debate, there is an assumption that you want a judge who will rule the way that you want, Absolutely. which is which is basically the opposite of textualism and originalism. Right. It basically means that the right has accepted and internalized the idea that the court should become a super legislature that will give them the outcomes that they prefer rather than a group of judges who will sit and say, what is the law? What is fair? We are the, you know, balls and strikes, et cetera. Yeah. So there's been a big move because I remember it wasn't that long ago that the conservative argument was the judges should not make laws. The judges should absolutely not be a super legislator. And that this was the fundamental difference between the right and the left, that the, that the left wanted activist judges who would legislate from the bench. We would never do that. We want judges who put the law first. Now you look at some of the debate and, and I'm not saying everyone, I'm certainly not, I, mean, I am generalizing here, um, but the, the with the hyper-politicization and tribalization of, of the court, you just want people who are going to rule the way that Trump wants them to rule. That, that seems to be the impulse, which is, right. which is a very dangerous development. Right. And I mean, look at how Je Chief Justice Roberts gotten hammered on Twitter um, yes. for ruling in ways that were, were not consistent with, with the Republican platform. I, exactly. I completely agree. And look at what, you know, the court has... It over it basically gutted the Voting Rights Act that had you know massive supermajorities in both sides of um, across both sides of the aisle. I mean that that has made a huge uh, impact in our voting system with money flowing in. That's not an activist court where you're taking an act of Congress and saying no, we actually don't think what we like what Congress did. Um, you can you can identify this activist judging is my point. On, from progressives and from yes, more right. conservative judges. It's a false dichotomy, but it's one that people seem to think, okay, conservative, that's a good judge. We should go for that because that's judging. And I tell my students, listen, I don't want you to tell me what the conclusion is, my law students. I want you to give me where the problems are and the analysis, because until you're on the Supreme Court, it doesn't matter what the conclusion is. But to your point, legal analysis about grappling with hard questions that have various ways of answering them. There is no one answer. If there was, nobody would pay lawyers hundreds of dollars an hour to try to figure it out. No, you're you're absolutely right. So we're going to find out very, very quickly. I guess I guess I, I'm I'm interested to know how the how this fight is going to play out since it's on speed dial. I mean that's gone it's it's going to happen so quickly. And I think we've anticipated that the uh, that the uh, confirmation process for the successor for Ruth Bader Ginsburg was going to be the ultimate nuclear cultural war moment. Um, it it may still be, but the fact that it's in the midst of everything else just makes it so such a complete wild card. And I, I do wonder um, how politically it plays out here. I mean, I, I think that 
She is uh, she is an attractive personality. I think there's a real risk of attacking her too hard. But I think that overwhelmingly, there seems to be, at least the, the polls I'm reading, people um, are going to be very skeptical of the rush. And, and if the Democrats can maintain message discipline and point out that, you know, focus on health care rather than re- religion, um, I don't think that this is going to do for Donald Trump what he and his and, and his folks think it will do. It will solidify the base. It will bring back uh, Republicans. It will make sure that evangelicals are enthused. There's no question about that. But I think what we're going to see is that that that's just not a big enough number to win a presidential election. But we're going to find out because, Kim, this election day is five weeks from tomorrow. Can you believe that? I know. I, I, I see your, your email every day, your newsletter, and you have that number staring at us. <laughs> it's, uh, I know. I, I know. It's like buckle our seatbelts, man. I, I, it, I can't even imagine where we're headed. Exactly. Yeah. Kim Willie, thank you so much for joining us on the Bulwark Podcast. We'll look forward to your contributions in the future. And thank you for being so generous with your time. Thank you, Charlie. Always a pleasure to talk to you. And thank you for listening to today's Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We will be back tomorrow, and we'll do this all over again.